Hall of Fame ballot of all time. That's what one writer called it yesterday, even though it's nothing of the kind. Good morning to you. Good Tuesday morning. I'm Dayan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports, and this is Daily Shot of Pirates. It comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into football and or hockey. I also offer up Daily Shots of Steelers and Penguins where you found this. Joel Sherman of the New York Post, been covering baseball for a long time, more from a national perspective than with either the Yankees or the Mets. So when he writes something, people will pay attention to it. And even though the Hall ballot was sent out to all of the hundreds of voters, including myself, I've been voting for a half decade now. When he writes, and I'm going to read you the entire passage, I would dare call it the most controversial Hall ballot ever. A-Rod and Ortiz, first-timers, and Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, and Sosa in their final year of eligibility on the writer's ballot. Those figures, those individuals, for somewhat varying reasons, although there's one commonality for most of them, are what's controversial. The ballot isn't. The process for choosing who should get an X next to their box on the still handwritten ballots isn't remotely controversial. I don't even think it's interesting. And here's why. Plain and simple. Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame who work together have made clear that they want in place a character clause. The criteria that is sent out to us voters is identical word for word to the criteria that was sent out to the voters in 1936. That was the original Hall ballot, the one that included, of course, Hannes Wagner as one of the initial five to be inducted. Same language. I'd be surprised if they weren't using the same carrier pigeons to bring these things to people. It wasn't controversial then, and it's not controversial now. There is a character clause in place. The character clause was not put there by the voting members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Baseball writers, contrary to a massive public misperception that I don't believe will ever be changed, aren't the ones who decided to, ooh, what's the various terminology I see every year when my ballot comes out? Get on their high horse, um, playing judge and jury, and all this other nonsense, when in fact, baseball, the commissioner's office, the hall, and I'm going to repeat this, even though they are separate entities, they work closely together. Major League Baseball does not govern the hall. But if Major League Baseball, and I'm going to point specifically 
to whichever commissioner happens to be in office, most prominently of late, Bud Seeley, because he oversaw the steroids era and turned a blind eye to it, and of course ended up getting himself inducted, not through the writers, but through other means. If they wanted to abolish the character clause, they could do it with the swipe of a pen. They could do it just like that. The Pro Football Hall of Fame doesn't have any such clause. The Hockey Hall of Fame doesn't have any such clause. Only baseball does. Why? I don't know. Because those people who came up with that idea in the 1930s probably aren't around with us anymore to go and ask. But it's still there. And it's never been taken away. In fact, to my knowledge, no one's ever even discussed taking it away. So when Barry Bonds broke Hank Aaron's record, sickeningly enough, in San Francisco a few years ago, and Selig decided, strikingly, I mean really strikingly, to not attend because he wanted no part of it, because he knew how tainted it was, Selig still wouldn't touch the character clause. He said, you know what? The public blames the writers for this. We're just going to let it go. Don't worry about it. Just leave the character clause in there and everything's going to be fine. Those guys will get filtered out. The cheaters will get filtered out. So the writers end up being the villains. In the eyes of the people who think it's okay to cheat. Well, guess what? I'm one of these voters and I sure don't feel like a villain when I'm following the precise guidelines that are listed. At least as precise as they were in 1936. If you read what's there, the player or the individual who's being considered can't have done anything to hurt the game. The cheaters hurt the game. I don't care if everyone was cheating. I don't care if it was just a handful of people. I don't care if it was just who got caught. If you cheated, you cheated. You, you, you violated the character clause. That can't stop me or anybody else or any document from 80 years ago from taking away your numbers or in the case of the Astros most recently, your championship. Can't do that. But for this very specific purpose, you're not going to get a vote. One of the questions that I'm asked most often about the hall voting process and everything else as it relates to the cheaters is, well, if they took away the character clause, would you vote for Bonds? My answer is yes, hell yes, in a heartbeat. I don't even, I don't hesitate with that. Yes, absolutely. Take the character clause away, and he's the easiest vote, like, of all time. You know who else would be in? And not that he's on the ballot anymore, is, is 
Pete Rose, and everybody else that Major League Baseball put this clause into effect to keep out. In fact, they trusted that the writers would do the jobs that they've been asked to do. They trusted that. And that's what they're getting, at least from some. There's also public pressure that comes from the outside. Who do you think you are? Some of the stuff that I already mentioned. And as a result, very curiously, with each passing year, you see the cheaters' numbers go higher and higher. Barry Bonds last year was at 61.6%. The threshold to get in, of course, is 75%. I guess he's becoming less and less of a cheater over time, like gradually expunging his record or something. And Finaru and Wada never wrote that book that included mountains, mountains of evidence, unlike any cheater in the history of sports, even Lance Armstrong, there's more evidence on Bonds than anyone else. People, oh, he never failed a test or whatever else. Read the book. Read the book. I'm not going to get into who I'm voting for and who I'm not voting for. I never do that in advance of a ballot. But I will say this. The only way my stance, my general stance on cheaters will change is if I get a letter from the Hall of Fame telling me that their criteria has changed and they will now welcome cheaters into Cooperstown. If that's the case, and you're hearing it from me here on the record, on the record, I'll vote for every stinking one of them who's qualified. But that's not going to happen. When we come back, just one question. you always on this program by the North Shore Tavern, home of Steak on a Stone, home of the city's best environment for sports and all kinds of entertainment that's taking place now on the weekends there. There's live music, there's comedy. It's a it's a pretty vibrant establishment to say the least and it goes very much in the face of uh, what used to be on that street. Uh, directly across Federal Street from PNC Park. Check out North Shore Tavern. Our J1Q comes from BK who asks, I'm curious as to what you think the step for 2022 should be in being a step forward. Is that signing someone for three plus years? Is that trading for a long-term piece? A one or two year rental doesn't make sense for how the team is currently built. And for anyone who didn't hear yesterday's episode, he's referring to my criticism of the Pirates signing of Jose Quintana to a one-year, $2 million deal yesterday. And my first response will be, I don't view individual transactions as progress, which is what it sounded like you were getting at with the first couple components to your question there. Um, I'm not someone who, when the Pirates signed Adam LaRoche 
over the winter went, yes, this is it. They did it. I mean, this is this is winning a day in the off season when you do stuff like that. It only matters if you can make it all add up to something. What I view as progress in the 2022 season is A, the continuing maturation, development, and ascension of the various noteworthy prospects in the system. I'm not taking my eye off that ball. I believe in it. But B, the team in Pittsburgh's got to be better. These things, contrary to what a lot of people seem to think when they entrench themselves in one side or the other, don't need to be mutually exclusive. They really don't. This is now going to be the third year of this management team. It might not feel like it because of the pandemic and everything else, shortened season, a lot of wasted games. But this is now year three. And for me to suggest, and this is going to answer your question, although I've stated this before, for me to suggest that this team should be in the range of 500 in 2022, not the organization, not the prospect rankings, the Pittsburgh Pirates should be around 500 next year is hardly an outlandish thing. This is year three. You had to have been acquiring players who would make you better at all levels along the way. And if you think about Charrington's trades, although he has favored the younger, high-ceiling types and so forth, he's also made at least a couple significant trades in which he got the quote-unquote ready-for-the-majors type of prospects, the kind that Neil Huntington over-relied on. When you get Bryce Wilson from the Braves for Richard Rodriguez, you're not doing that for years down the road. You're doing that for right now. When you get Will Crow and Eddie Yeen from the Nationals for Josh Bell, and Eddie Yeen gets left off the roster right away, as he just was, and Will Crow is what you have left, Will Crow has to come through. Will Crow has to become a good pitcher. Bryce Wilson has to become a good pitcher. Not in 2023, not in 2024. That's letting the GM off the hook. There's nothing futuristic about those two guys, at least not, you know, super long-term future. They're in the majors now, both of them. They're vying for rotation spots now, both of them. This is what I'm talking about when I say you don't let them off the hook. You don't just say, oh, well, you get forever to do this at the Pittsburgh level. So I'm not going to condense the whole thing down to what did the Quintana acquisition, uh, you know, how do you grade that in terms of whether or not the Pirates are going to be this or that? I felt like when it happened, the Quintana acquisition, that it was, it was just going out and just filling a roster spot with somebody that you didn't even need to spend money on. He was cut by two teams last year. He's been hurt for three years. He had a six-something ERA. 
You don't need to pay that money to anybody, that $2 million. There was no market for this guy. There couldn't have been. You can find those guys off the scrap heap. You can call up Cody Ponce to be a six-something ERA guy for you next year, and he won't cost you anything. It felt like spending money to spend money, and that was exactly the way I phrased it, and that's how I feel about it. Uh, but as far as how, what, you know, what does it mean toward you? They just need to get better. They need to get a lot better at the Pittsburgh level. I appreciate the question, BK. I always do. Uh, I appreciate everyone listening to Daily Shot of Pirates. We'll do another one of these tomorrow.